Hi everyone, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Monday, November 21st. Amanda Borchel Dan here in our Jerusalem offices with our editor David Horowitz and diplomatic correspondent Laser Behrman. Hello to you both. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning to you both. <laughs> so good to see you. We have a lot to update you on. We'll get a sense of the current status of the surprisingly ongoing coalition talks. Hear about first diplomatic ripples around a new government helmed by designate Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and learn about what's different this World Cup for Israel. But first, a short break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. And we're back. David, the coalition that has seemed like a sure thing sure is taking a long while to coalesce. Are you actually surprised in any way? Uh, I guess not. It, you know, the, I, I don't think that this is not going to be the coalition. I don't think there is any other coalition other than, you know, Likud and its three quote unquote natural allies, the two ultra orthodox parties and the now um, dismantled religious Zionism alliance. But they're driving a hard bargain and Netanyahu is exuding curious weakness. And at the moment, everything is stuck. You know, he, he said before the elections he wasn't going to give the foreign ministry, the, the defense ministry or the treasury to any of the partners. He would keep that for senior Likud people. And then he immediately invited Arya Derry of Shas to take a ministry of his choice. And Derry said, finance, thank you very much. Never mind that I've just been convicted of tax uh, offenses. Uh, and then uh, Smotrich said, well, in that case, I'll have defense. And he kind of brought this upon himself, you might think. And yet, when all is said and done, I imagine that all the arguments will be sorted out, again, because Netanyahu has no alternative coalition. Derry is an interesting case. Just to briefly tell our listeners why he perhaps may not be able to be a minister at all. Well, I, I suspect that in the end, he will become a minister, and, it, and, it, and this will be solved by some kind of confrontation with the judicial authorities. But he is a twice convicted financial criminal. Uh, he went to jail and had to take a break from politics as a consequence under Israeli law. And then earlier this year, he accepted a plea bargain um, for a suspended sentence for tax offenses. And the judge who accepted the plea bargain uh, said in his uh, summation that uh, it was fine because Derry had assured him that he would not be um, involved in any kind of political activity and certainly not in any political activity where he was in control of national financial resources. Uh, Derry now, as I said, intends to become the finance minister. We'll see if that happens. But the attorney general's interpretation of Israeli law is that since he has been sentenced to a jail term, even though it's a suspended sentence, 
the law requires that he not um, be uh, a minister. It bars him from being a minister. Derry's contention is that the that law relates to somebody who is actually serving a custodial sentence, who actually goes to jail rather than having that sentence suspended. Uh, the Attorney General is of a different opinion. Uh, they could go to the, uh, the justice who presided over the Central Election Committee for a decision, uh, or, as we are told, might be more likely, they will attempt to legislate and change the relevant law so that it specifies that it's only a custodial term that bars you from becoming a minister. The Supreme Court will probably be required to intervene. It's not clear how the Supreme Court would rule on such a matter. And, of course, in the background of all of that is the looming confrontation between this coalition, all of whose parties... Uh, want to rein in the Supreme Court and the justices themselves, which we've talked about, this so-called override clause, uh, which may come to be relevant in the Derry case or may not. Okay, thank you for that. Now, David, it, it seems like a simple matter to parcel out these different ministries, but one theory that I'm hearing is that Netanyahu is intentionally making it more difficult so that he'll get weaker figures into these positions in order to have more power himself as the prime minister. What do you think about that? I think it's absolutely not the case. Uh, I think that he is uh, in an alliance with um, some very, very ideologically uncompromising people, most of all Bezalel Smotrich, the leader of religious Zionism, uh, who, as you'll recall, a year and a half ago prevented Netanyahu from remaining in power. And Netanyahu did have a coalition after the elections in 2021. It required the support from outside the coalition of Ram, the uh, conservative Islamist party that in the end joined the Lapid and uh, Bennett coalition. Uh, Ram, as far as we understand, was prepared to ally itself in some way with a Netanyahu-led coalition and there were contacts and Smotrich said no. Never mind that they wouldn't be in the coalition. We're not prepared to have a coalition that relies on their support. So this is somebody who is not yielding and not compromising. Uh, and he's driving a hard bargain now. And he will not be a weak minister in any role. And he wants the incredibly sensitive job of defense minister. So no, I don't buy that argument. In the meantime, the U.S., at least leaders, Jewish leaders from the U.S., have voiced stronger reactions than we're used to in terms of internal Israeli politics, including the head of the reform movement, Rabbi Rick Jacobs. What did he say recently? I think he, he compared the notion of uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir, um, Smotrich's partner slash rival in the, in the now dismantled religious Zionism. The idea of, uh, of Ben-Gvir becoming the minister of public security, he compared that to uh, somebody, the head of the KKK becoming the attorney general in the United States, if I'm not mistaken. You know, that's the latest in a series of concerned comments of different resonance from American Jewish leaders. And you're right, it's atypical. Um, uh, and it's atypical because some of the positions and some of the policies relating to this uh, nascent coalition are pretty concerning for uh, diaspora Jews and for many Israelis. Uh, among them, you know, the notion that the law of return might be amended to um, abolish the grandchild clause of eligibility for citizenship, uh, efforts that were uh, discussed yesterday for the first time to more widely legitimize uh, gender-separated public events, the notion of revoking reform conversions in Israel for purposes of citizenship, uh, as we know, ultra-Orthodox efforts to legislate firmly that they will not be subject to the draft. Uh, these are these are ambitions and goals of um, of uh, religious and ultra-Orthodox parties going way back, but I think they feel they have greater leverage and a greater capacity to get things done. And the consequences of those decisions, if they come to pass, would be damaging for many Israelis and for, for many in the diaspora. And therefore, you're hearing atypically anguished comments, including from 
very often understated American Jewish leaders. I'm not talking here about Rick Jacobs, but when the head of the Conference of Presidents expresses concern about changes to the law of return, and he didn't make particularly dramatic comments, William Daroff, but he doesn't usually like to publicly raise any concerns about Israel's direction. And that reflects uh, the worries here. Liz, returning to you and being on the international scene, of course, Prime Minister-designate Netanyahu is fielding a lot of calls. Among them, perhaps most notably, is from the Turkish president, with whom he's had a bit of a rocky past. Tell us more about this phone call. Yeah, so there's two big questions that I'm paying attention to, and I think observers of Israel, Israel's diplomacy are paying attention to. One is, how does the return of Netanyahu himself um, affect how other countries want to deal with Israel. So the big question there is, you know, is it about the personality in charge of Israel or is it about what Israel represents in terms of interests and in terms of what it can prov provide for regional parties? And what will Netanyahu decide to do um, as he takes uh, Israel's foreign policy forward? I think we, uh, unsurprisingly, we are seeing that uh, countries that decided to improve their relationship with Israel, Turkey most uh, exceptionally, did it not because, you know, Lapid or Bennett was in power, but because they wanted to uh, have a positive, constructive, a positive sum relationship with Israel. And so I don't think, uh, I was certainly not expecting uh, Turkey or Erdogan himself to change the trend of, of the past year and a half of positive relations with Israel. They recently, uh, you know, appointed a, uh, an ambassador, Israel appointed uh, ambassador in Ankara as well. And I think I'm certain that that Turkey decided that they wanted to get back to the type of relationship, maybe not as warm in the 90s, um, but one in which they are not uh, seen as rivals in the region. They're working together on things like energy, uh, counterterrorism, certainly trade. Um, and uh, that phone call, I think, reflected that the readouts of the two sides were somewhat different. But both, uh, you know, there, there was the it was clear that both sides are facing terror attacks, and they they uh, both offered condolences to each other. It kind of underscored the cooperation in fighting terror. And we rem remember over the summer that Iranian plot to harm Israelis um, in Istanbul that they worked together very well on before the uh, the full diplomat diplomatic relations were restored. Um, so I think that that trend will continue, and, and I don't expect at all Netanyahu to change that trend. I think it's good for both sides, even though in the past Erdogan and Netanyahu have, uh, have been very publicly critical of one another. Um, this is not the time for that, and I think they both understand that. Uh, as we look around the region, I don't expect the Abram Accords countries to... Um, you know, to, to see his return with any sort of public alarm. Again, this is the uh, prime minister that they signed the Abram Accords with. Um, if things get a little bit dicey in Jerusalem and especially on the Temple Mount, let's say Ben Gvir becomes public security minister, that will make things a little bit uh, more difficult for them. I always emphasize the fact that public support for the Abram Accords in these countries is steadily declining since they've been signed. And this is something that could further erode that. But on the elite level, on the ruling class level in these countries, which is who makes policy, um, the, return, the, the return of BB is absolutely fine for them. And some might even prefer to have this figure who has been very vocal about confronting Iran and is seen as a very powerful anti-Iranian figure in the region, uh, is back and in charge of Israel's security policy. Okay, we'll go to a short break now. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. 
That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. It's World Cup time, and we have a reporter on site, David, in Qatar, Ash Obel. What are we hearing from him so far? Well, you know, the the tournament is a day old, and um, it was always controversial for so many reasons, uh, including the fact that uh, um, Qatar is um, has a very dubious human rights record, uh, including outlawing um, homosexuality that its uh, realization of the World Cup involved building lots of stadia in which, according to Qatar, a handful of foreign workers were killed, and according to other observers, thousands of foreign workers were killed. Um, It's also, by the way, in footballing terms, really bizarre because the tournament is being staged, I think for the first time ever, in the middle of the domestic soccer season. So all the leagues around the world, or much of the world, have had to take a month and a half weird break in the middle of their games and send all their best players off to play football in distant parts. So it's really troubling even within the football um, fraternity. Anyway, Ash uh, indeed uh, flew to Qatar yesterday um, where the first game was played. And for the first time in World Cup history, the host nation lost the opening game. Uh, There was a lot of talk about Ecuador having been bribed to lose the game. But Ecuador did not lose the game. Qatar left, lost the game. And Ash's first uh, reports have been about you know, the sort of lack of overwhelming national enthusiasm. And also, and we've seen this elsewhere, the international community kind of belatedly getting on Qatar's case. So, for example, the BBC, which had broadcast rights to the opening ceremony in Britain last night, didn't show it. You know, it's uh, it's a real contrast to, you know, to Putin's, for example, grandiose opening uh, Olympic ceremonies and so on, which were shown around the world, even though he was uh, hardly everybody's cup, cup of tea even then. So the BBC decided not to show the opening ceremony and instead spent the half an hour or so of, you know, very choreographed festivities that Qatar had laid on there, uh, castigating Qatar for its uh, for its various offences. Um, and there's some criticism of that, by the way. But this is a, a World Cup taking place amid controversy. Um, and I think the notion, if Qatar thought that uh, its uh, its problematic aspects would kind of be forgotten once the football started, not the case. Nonetheless, I'll just say finally, you know, once the football gets going in earnest, it's an incredibly popular sport, soccer. Um, there are wonderful players playing. And I suspect that unless there's actual, you know, practical political disasters or scandals that arise, gradually, I, I think, you know, people will begin to focus on the soccer to the, the relief of Qatar. But we'll see. For Israelis, it's precedent setting just the very fact that we could fly there directly. Laser, tell us a little bit about the diplomacy. Sure. So Qatar and Israel don't have official uh, diplomatic relations right now. In 1996, they opened an interest office, you know, trade trade office. And Qatar has generally been somewhat ahead of other countries in the region on talking to Israel. Um, that office was closed after the 2008-2009 CAS-led operation. That's when they cut ties. But there are reports that um, in 2013, they, they helped get dozens of Yemenite Jews out um, of Yemen, that they flew through Doha. And then onward, there is a stadium, and I believe in Sakhnin, uh, in, in northern Israel, that's the Doha Stadium that the Qatari government funded. So they're not at all opposed to doing things with Israel. Now, it became a little bit more complex uh, here because, you know, Israeli citizens are need to be able to go to the games. 
and Israel's foreign ministry want to be able to be present to provide uh, consular services. Um, they didn't want to raise a flag or anything, but if anyone loses a passport or gets in a fight or breaks some of these uh, laws that, that the, the Qataris have, um, they need to be there to, to help sort them out. The deal was reached a couple of weeks ago that Israel would be able to have diplomats in the country. So there's six diplomats in the country. There is a spokesman there as well. At all times, it's going to switch. But the foreign ministry has a spokesman who's going to be spokesmaning um, publicly. They are housed. They're saying it's not a diplomatic office. It is a tsevet in Hebrew. So I guess a team in the country that is at a private travel company. That's where they're being housed. But they came in on diplomatic passports with a Qatari... Um, uh, official with them, and um, Israel certainly sees, sees this as very significant. There's the other issue with the flights, right? So how are Israelis going to get there? It took a while to get this agreement between FIFA, Qatar, and Israel done, so by that time, the tens of thousands of Israelis who had bought tickets found their own flights. Uh, but they announced that they had found a legal agreement to allow direct flights by, by, by a private company to uh, to, to uh, reach uh, from Ben Gurion Airport uh, to Doha. And for the first uh, week or so, there was just nothing because the foreign ministry says it's not our job to find flights. If a private company wants to do this, they can. So there's a Cypriot airline which has um, which has scheduled 12 flights. Israelis and Palestinians were on the first one. They made a big deal about it with, uh, you know, special tickets and, and a cake and everything and balloons. Um, and it looks like that there, you know, these other flights will be full and they'll even add a few more for the for the final games. Um, so so that is certainly uh, something that that Israel is um, excited about, whether it leads to something else. I think <laughs> I don't think directly. Right. Qatar is, is like other countries in the regions uh, has reasons to kind of stay in the stay out of uh be the, not be the country that that is on the leading edge of, of relations with Israel, um, but it certainly helps when two countries that don't recognize each, each other uh, officially are able to work together in a positive fashion and get get work done. So um, this is certainly a, a positive sign. The question is how important is it moving forward, and that we'll have to see. So Israel is also hosting its own sporting event, the World Team Chess Championship that kicked off yesterday in Jerusalem. What makes this match so exciting, David? Well, it does, it's, it's quite a big deal, this tournament. And chess is, you know, very popular in certain circles. But chess right now is, uh, you know, kind of an incredible international story because there's a scandal surrounding it. And the player at the center of the scandal is playing in this tournament, uh, a, a young American named Hans Niemann. Now, um, not very many weeks ago, he was playing uh, a, a tournament against the world chess champion, uh, Magnus Carlsen, and Carlsen accused him of cheating. Uh, and he has some history of uh, acknowledged cheating in online, um, not incredibly serious chess play, uh, but uh, Carlsen accused him of cheating in, in their game and has claimed that he's become incredibly good very fast, improbably, Mr. Neiman, and this, you know, this can't be real. Uh, I think others have, I mean, I don't know what wording one can actually use in a family podcast like this, but the allegation cited by some is that Mr. Neiman is using uh, foul means to, um, <laughs> to, uh, to help make the best moves. Really look it up, guys, if you, if you want to know the specifics. Um, and I think Neiman is suing Carlson for, you know, lots and lots of money. Um, I don't think he's been giving interviews uh, since he got to Jerusalem, although we have an intrepid reporter who's 
uh, doing her best to secure a conversation with him. But yeah, the the um, I would say the very you know passionately popular uh, uh, in limited circles game of chess right now is kind of an international. Uh, celebrity sport uh, because of this scandal and its repercussions and the traveling chess circus happens to be um, playing out in Jerusalem this week. All right, Laser, David, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing and thanks to our producer Gilad Brownstein and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.